Happy Mother's Day. We're in this series called Living Hope. I'm going to ask some questions, some just very honest questions to start off with. Have you ever looked at the world? You don't have to answer out loud on this one. Have you ever looked at the world and just kind of shook your head and go, why? And I don't mean that kind where someone does something silly or stupid and you're like, what, you know, you're kind of some, something like that, but somewhat, something that's going on in the world and you go, not why would you do that, but why would God allow that? Have you ever had a hard time reconciling what this is what I believe to be true about God? He's good and he's powerful, but I can't make sense of why that would be allowed to happen. Or have you ever been in a season where like it feels like something would be she moving here, but like why is this taking so long? Where are you? What are you doing? How long? If you've ever asked questions like, like that, it, it's, it's challenging. And sometimes we see something, see something come up on the headlines of news and we, we go, God, why would you allow that to happen? But it's something more personal when it happens, not in the headlines, but in your life, to you. And sometimes it impacts us even deeper when it's not us, but it's someone we deeply care about. Have you ever asked that question for something you see going on in the life of a friend or a family member? And you go, God, why would you allow this to happen? Those are very real moments of questioning and pain. If you've ever done that, you have a lot in common with an Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. And we've been looking at him in this series, Living Hope, and We've drawn a lot from Craig Rochelle's book, Hope in the Dark. He kind of introduced me and some others to really taking a longer look at Habakkuk and what a unique person he is in the Bible. Um, He was a prophet of God, but he's different than any other prophet that we really get to look at their life in some different ways. The book of Habakkuk is unique in some ways, and I'll show you what I mean. In Habakkuk 1, it tells us that the prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received, it tells us that's what this is. And the word prophecy here means an utterance, a doom, a weight, or a burden. He was carrying a burden that was hard to figure out. It was hard to manage. And his name literally means to wrestle and to embrace. And this is what he does. He embraces what he knows to be true of God. God is good. God is powerful. God is the God of the universe. God is sovereign. And he embraced that, but he was wrestling with some of what he saw in the world. And even some of what was happening with his people and some of what God was about to allow to happen to his people. And he asked these questions, how long, why, why, why are you doing this? And it's very raw and it's very real. And I'm glad it is. And this is unique because Habakkuk, usually a prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. Habakkuk is a book where he's speaking to God on behalf of the people and we get to read it, we get to listen in. And what he shows us is it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to wrestle, but just make sure you embrace. Embrace what you know to be true. And he kind of gives us permission to do that. And Habakkuk does it for himself, but he's also doing it for the people. He's doing it for others. And there's something about when you're wrestling with questions about someone you deeply care about that makes it very, very hard. Very hard. And he does that. Habakkuk is also a flawed person. He's not perfect. And what I love is that the Bible shows us that God uses imperfect people to carry out his perfect plan in the life of others. And today what we're going to talk about is how do you bring hope to others when they're in a seemingly hopeless situation? 
How do you do that, especially without being condescending? Because if some of us are awkward, sometimes we try to bring hope to others. We try to say something when people are hurting, grieving, or in pain, or have questions, and we don't always say the right thing. It happened to me yesterday. I knew if something was going on in someone's life, and I just wanted to say, hey, I'm praying for you, I care, and I want to, however I can, and here's something I think. And as I'm going through it, I, I let this phrase come out of my mouth. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I let this phrase come out of my mouth, and I was like, shouldn't have said that. And unlike the radio or TV, there's no dump button. There's no time delay on time, what I'm saying and what they're hearing. Once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's out there. It's not going back in. I was like, oh, I had a cringe moment as I tried to bring hope to someone, and I think I was a little bit condescending. Habakkuk's a great role model for us. He lived 600 years before Jesus, so 2,600 years ago. 2,500 years later after Habakkuk, within the last 100 years, we had another Habakkuk show up in a sorts in life. And some of you probably heard of him. His name is C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of him. It's okay if you didn't, but okay, a lot of you have. Hugely influential on me, and his story's amazing. His name is Clive Staples Lewis, and people call him C.S. Lewis. When he was four years old, his dog died. And honestly, it, like sometimes that's the first pain you navigate in life is you lose a pet. And at the time, and for some of us even still, it's pretty hard when you lose a pet. And his dog, Jaxie, meant the world to him. And when Jaxie died, he decided from that moment on, I want to be called Jaxie. Let me give a disclaimer to kids. You can't do this until you've written a bunch of books and you're famous. He could do it because of what he went on to do. So I had a parent tell me, you know, our kid's going to now ask us to be called so-and-so because his cat died. I'm like, sorry, I'm just telling his story. But he decided Jaxie for the rest of his life. And his friend, and later he shorted to Jax. His name was Clive Staples. He didn't like that. Anyone here named Clive? Anyone here named Clive? Like, I get it. I wouldn't want to be called Clive either, right? <laughs> like, I get that. But he decided to be called Jack. And for the rest of his life, his friends and people who knew him called him Jack. Although we know him as C.S. Lewis, he was called Jack because he had this pain of losing a pet. At age nine, he had a toothache. In the middle of the night, he called out for his mom and she didn't come to his room. Eventually, his dad showed up. His dad was an attorney and he came in and he said, hey, uh, your mom's not gonna come. She's in a lot of pain. She's sick. She has cancer. And very shortly after, she died. And Jack was raised to know and follow Jesus. And he embraced that. But as he wrestled, he started to let go of what he embraced. Fast forward several years, he was very smart, very, very smart. He read a ton as a kid. He was uh, taught um, uh, at Oxford. He taught English literature, especially medieval literature. He was one of the best thinkers in the world on that. Uh, but World War I started. He had a choice to go or not to go, and he chose to go. Um, trench warfare had started. It was very brutal on the Western Front uh, is where he was. 6,000 people were dying every day. In the war itself, 10 million were dead on both sides. Another 20 million were injured. C.S. Lewis was a second lieutenant, and one day they were at the Western Front, and they were advancing in World War I. And a bomb, and it's unclear if it was British or German, dropped right in front of his platoon and exploded, killing two of his friends. Two of his friends were part of that 10 million that died, that 6,000 that died every day. And he was one of those 20 million that was injured. Shrapnel got his left leg, his left arm, his chest, 
in and uh, punctured a lung. For a minute, he thought he was going to die because he couldn't breathe. they They had to really help him. And he came home with scars from war. And even though he had a lot of scars on the outside, most of his scars were on the inside. And even more, he pushed back from God. And he started voicing this at a very early age. He said, at best case scenario, God doesn't exist. Worst case scenario, he does, and either he doesn't care, he's incompetent, or he's cruel. He could not reconcile what he saw in his home, in the world, in the trenches at the western front of a war, and in life. So he wrestled and let go of what he embraced in terms of his faith, and he called himself an atheist. He's teaching at Oxford. He's teaching English literature. He was part of a writing group known as the Inklings. They gathered and they talked about their stories as they wrote these fiction stories and they read each other's stories. One of the stories that was read in that group was The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. There's a movie out about him this weekend. I haven't seen it, don't know anything about it, but his life is amazing. He wrote that. He wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He was a great writer and he was friends with C.S. Lewis at Oxford. And he started asking questions to C.S. Lewis, to Jack, his friend Jack, about what he believed. And he pushed him to wrestle, to keep thinking, to use his intellect and reason to think about, you really believe in God? That takes a lot of faith to not believe in God. What do you mean by that? And he pushed him on questions, and they would go on walks. And he put some books in his hand, and C.S. Lewis picked up some books along the way from a guy named George MacDonald, who was a Scottish pastor, poet, and author that had lived decades before him. He didn't know him, although he did write him a letter one day kind of to the, even though he knew George MacDonald was dead and wouldn't read it. He read a book from G.K. Chesterton, several books from him, and they influenced him and started moving him and pressing him to keep wrestling with his questions and doubts. Eventually one day, C.S. Lewis re-embraced this belief that there is a God and he is good, he is kind, he's capable, he's powerful. And he described himself as going into believing in, in, in Jesus and having a Christian faith Kicking and screaming, eyes darting around looking for a way out as the most reluctant convert. But he was a convert. And there were three things that really drove him to that. One was the reason, the logic of it. He was a thinker, a deep thinker, very smart. And the problem of pain, the ability to reconcile who is God and what I see in the world and to make those work with Christian faith at first drove him away from God and it can do that for you too but eventually it drove him to him to a point where he could understand I'm understanding more the problem of pain. The importance of reason and logic made him embrace a faith in Christ. The evidence of Jesus in the Gospels, who he was, God with us, God in the flesh, God incarnate, it, it moved him to say that's who I'm following. And I believe in. And then the other thing, in a life full of pain and disappointment and discouragement, doubt, he found that Christianity only could fill his deepest needs and desires. And what he had been seeking was happiness. But he learned that hidden beyond happiness is joy. Something much better, much deeper. And he decided, I'm not going to sell out joy to grab a hold of happiness. That's far too shallow and far too dependent on what happens around me. And he said, in in Christ, I have found joy and so much more. And he writes this book, The Problem of Pain. And a lot of people read it because that's a question and a problem a lot of us have wrestled with. 
Eventually, a guy reads it with the BBC, the radio network in England during World War II. Another war has come up. This time, C.S. Lewis is not on the front lines fighting. Instead, they put a radio microphone in front of him, and they give him the airwaves. And as Winston Churchill was on saying, we will fight in the streets, we will fight on the landing, we will fight and we will prevail. People were, had, were optimistic about the battle, but they still lacked hope and faith. But then C.S. Lewis started giving a series of talks. Eventually, they became his book, one of his bestsellers, Mere Christianity, where he makes a case for faith. Not that the battle in, in World War II will end up okay, but there's a spiritual battle and Jesus is king, and he prevails. And to not be with him is to lose the war. And his three radio addresses eventually be turned into this book, and it brings hope to a nation. Royal Air Force Air Chief Marshal Donald Harmon said this, the war, the whole of life, everything tended to seem pointless. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. Lewis provided that. What if he had never been friends with J.R.R. Tolkien? What if he had never picked up a book from George MacDonald or G.K. Chesterton? What if he had never kept wrestling with his questions to figure out what he should embrace? His story is a story of hope that came from hopelessness, that came from walking away from God to pointing people to him as the only alternative, the only choice. He was a college professor, lecturer, and academic. He was what you could call a layman. He was never a pastor, never a minister in profession. He taught at Oxford and Cambridge about English literature. But his 30-something books are some of the most influential of the 20th century. And he told his story, and he was a hope bringer. And what I want to challenge you with is No one may put a microphone in front of you. You may never write a book. You may never give them the opportunity to lecture in front of thousands of people or even hundreds of people or maybe in front of anybody. But your story is just important to what God wants to do in the world because your story is unique and it's a unique puzzle that someone might not connect with him, but they'll connect with you. The world doesn't need another C.S. Lewis. The world needs your story where you find hope in Christ. And what I want you to understand is that when God builds a big faith in your life, there is faith enough for others. It's contagious. And sometimes what's most needed to bring hope to a situation is for someone to go first with hope. That's what J.R.R. Tolkien did. He went first. Then C.S. Lewis went. And then who knows how many were influenced by him. I am. I was telling Mark Porter this. In my office, I have a lot of books, and there, there is nobody I have more, no author I have more of their books than C.S. Lewis. Times three. Like, I have more of him. He's had such an influence on my life. But so have others that you've never heard of. And your story can influence others. They, we don't need another C.S. Lewis. We need you to have hope and be a hope bringer. He had some friends that decided to kind of move him along and influence him to follow Jesus and find hope in him. 
There's another group of friends like that in the Bible we read about. One, the Inklings were the guys in Oxford and Cambridge. But, but there are these guys in Mark chapter 2 that they're called the friends of the paralytic. They're so important to us at Live Oak because they're our, kind of our model for ministry. And what you see in Mark chapter 2 is one day, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no, uh, no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. When they showed up, he started teaching them where hope is found, that God is a God of hope. Some men came, hoping to get in on that. More importantly, they had a friend who needed to, uh, needed to be healed, and they were hoping maybe he could do something there, bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. This guy didn't have, not, had to have a lot going for him, but he had some people that cared. And they asked this question, what can we do for our friend? We don't know how good of friends they were. They might have just been passerbys that had compassion. We don't know the depth of the relationship. But there was enough of connection there that they decided to do something coordinated. And the friend on the mat could have said no, but he let them. And if you want to bring hope to someone's life, just ask, what can we do? And when they got there, they found a crowded house, sold out audience, there weren't even obstruction view seats left. Like they were shut out. So then they said this. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. They asked, what can we do? And they hit a closed door and then said, well, what else can we do? And that's if you want to bring a hope bringer, ask what else can we do? And they decide to do something coordinated together and creative a little bit destructive, to dig a hole in some man's roof. I would love to know what that guy thought about the whole thing. We don't know. We know what Jesus thought. Here's what happens next. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on later and he heals him. He takes care of his most pressing need, which was spiritual. And then this physical need, which was to be healed. But what I don't understand theologically is it wasn't the faith of the man, it was the faith of the friends that moved the heart of God. What you do on behalf of others to try and, try and, try and bring hope to them and connect them to Christ, it matters, it makes a difference. Never underestimate the impact of the hope you have on behalf of others. I wonder if those guys knew this was coming. I wonder if they underestimated it. If they did, it didn't stop them from action. They said, what can we do? What else can we do? Never underestimate the impact of the faith you have on behalf of others. Never underestimate the impact of the love you show on behalf of others, of the prayers you pray on behalf of others, the compassion you show, the actions you take, but one of the best things these guys did, they just showed up. What do you do when someone's in a hopeless situation? Show up. Be with them. Join them in that. They were present in their life. What I want to ask you is, who do you need to carry the mat for? Who do you know in your life that is needing hope? You may not have the answers but you can be present. For me, I told you that story like yesterday, like sometimes I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing so I don't say anything. But yesterday, I'm still glad I said something even though it was 
I wish I could take some of it back. But better than saying something, be present. Show up in people's lives. Mindy, who's on our staff, she's a amazing staff teammate to us and an amazing friend to others. And one of the things she said to others, and I'm sure, pretty sure she said it to me in some form, she says this. This is a great thing to say. I don't know how to fix this, but would you let me have hope for you? I almost imagine that that's what the friends of the paralytic said to him. Hey, we don't know how to fix this, but would you let, let us have hope for you? Would you let us have faith for you? Can we pick up the mat and walk with you to see if maybe Jesus could be involved here? Being present is so powerful. And we have, they're a great role model for us, but we have no better role model than Jesus himself. Being present is exactly what Jesus did. God with us. He shows up in a manger. He shows up in life. He shows up in a family. He knows what it's like to grow up. He knows what it's like to have, be rejected. He knows what it's like to be hurt. He knows what it's like to hurt physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He knows it. He put himself in our shoes. Or sandals, I guess. I guess there were sandals back then. He lived life in our skin to know how hard life can be. And so when you're ever going through something, understand, he gets it. And he showed up in a manger and he showed up on a cross, which means not only does he get it, you matter. And we have this great role model of what it looks like to be present, but there's something else you do when you're present that he did so well. It says this in Hebrews chapter four. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He gets it. He understands. He's been through it all. Here it talks about being tempted in every way just as we are, but he did not sin. But he also lived life in a family, a family that didn't always think the best of him. He had friends that betrayed him. He had false accusations. He had physical pain and torture. He had questioning of like, God, is there any other way? He had a humiliating death. He gets it. And you matter. And he shows up. He has presence with empathy. That's what Jesus is. God with us means he has presence with empathy. The word empathy can be a hard thing to figure out. And what I would just say is when you don't know what to do for someone, just be present with empathy. And here's what we mean by empathy. Brene Brown talks about empathy and what's the difference between sympathy and empathy. If someone fell down in a pit, sympathy is, I'm so sorry. Here's a sandwich. Here's some water. Here's a rope. I'm so sorry. Empathy gets in the pit with you. They join you. They, they, they enter into it. It's presence with empathy. She writes about this. She quotes um, Teresa Wiseman's, Wiseman's four attributes of empathy. Teresa Wiseman was a nursing scholar. She said, this is what empathy is. One, it's to be able to see the world as others see it. What does it look like to see world from their, the world from their perspective? And anytime you can put yourself in the perspective of others and see how they're looking at something, it helps. This requires putting your own stuff aside to see the situation through their eyes. Jesus did that. Again, he showed up. Second, it requires being non-judgmental. Judgment of another person's situation discounts their experience and is an attempt to protect ourselves often from the pain of the situation. Have you ever had someone that's in such deep pain that sometimes you're like, 
man, just being with them, I hurt with them so much that I got to get away. It's an un- unfortunate thing about us, but sometimes when someone's hurting, we'll be present for a little bit, but we're like, I got to tap out. This is too much for me. Because we start having empathy, and it hurts. Thirdly, it's to understand another person's feelings. You have to be in touch with your own feelings in order to understand how someone else feels sometimes, to put words to it and understanding. And again, it requires you putting your own stuff aside to be able to focus on them. Fourthly, and this is where it's hard for us, to communicate your understanding of that person's feelings. Sometimes we do that and it doesn't go well. So sorry for your loss. Well, at least they're not suffering. It sounds good, but that doesn't help me right now. At some point it will, but right now that doesn't help. Well, at least this, or it could have been this. Sometimes those statements, and we're doing our best, but sometimes they hurt. And sometimes we say stuff that's even really more off off the chart where it doesn't express empathy. So she recommends trying this. Try this. I've been there, and that really hurts. If someone's been through a similar, similar situation as you have, you can say, boy, I've been there, and it really hurts. I don't say that too often because I know sometimes when it's been said to me, I'm like, no, you haven't. You've been doing something similar, but mine's unique. And I really believe that because every person is unique and your experience, your story is different than mine, even though it has some similar parallels. It does. But sometimes it's helpful to say, hey, I've been there. And the reason this is important is because sometimes when people are hurting or struggling, they want to know that they're not alone. I'm not going crazy. Like, you went through this. Did you feel this way? Did you think this? Well, some of that, but yours is unique. It's different. But yeah, I struggle with that. And sometimes in our story, we hide and we carry it alone. We hide in the dark and we keep that stuff inside. And we think no one else understands. Someone does. Your story will matter to someone. And it can bring hope to someone for what you've navigated. And a lot of times with our painful stuff in our past, we want to hide it and move on. But it's exactly what someone else needs to hear that you navigated that with hope. Or at least now you found hope after you've been through it. Or another way to say it is this. It sounds like you're in a hard place right now. I can't imagine how hard that is. Please tell me more. I can't imagine how hard that is. Please tell me more. Or another one is this. I don't know how you feel, but I do care about how you feel. And I've probably used that phrase with some of you in this room. And what I want to ask for, for permission for me and others, is if we ever say one of these phrases to you that I just said or something like that, you think, oh, you're just saying that little memorized phrase. That does not mean we do not care. It's just at times we don't know what to say, but we want our words to matter. But sometimes it's not the words that matter. About a year ago, I was driving. I'm a big hockey fan, and I was seeing a game for the Tampa Bay Lightning, And we saw that game, it was over late at night, and we were driving down to Miami to see the Florida Panthers play the next day. And I was driving with my friend Paul Allen. He lives in Toronto, and he's a good friend. And we don't see each other that often, but we were driving, and in the middle of the night, we were driving through Alligator Alley, which sounds a lot more exciting than it is, especially at night. And we're driving down in the middle of nowhere, and cell coverage was spotty. And I get this call from someone I really cared about, and they said, man, I'm really going through a tough time right now, and I need you to be here. (laughs) Not only am I several states away, but I'm in the middle of nowhere. And I can't. And then the 
call gets dropped, and like I'm like I want to talk to them, but I can't. I can't even be there. They want me to be there. It was such a difficult situation, and it I mean it rattled me. And then my friend Paul, who was driving, said something so great. You know what he said? Nothing. He just sat there with me. Some of it might be he didn't know what to say. Some of it he knew that I didn't need to hear coaching right now. I didn't need Bible verses. Those came later. The encouragement came later. Later he said to me, something real smart, he didn't even give me advice. He said, what would you say to you if you were riding in the car with you right now? kind of know what to do here, but it was great. He said nothing for like 15 minutes. Although at one point he reached over and he just kind of put his hand on my shoulder, went like that. And it's good, I'm not a touchy-feeling person, so it was stick and move. It was perfect. Just, it was just perfect. He was present with boundaries. That was really good. That was really good. But what mattered there wasn't what he said, it was presence. Presence makes a difference. In Romans 12, Paul kind of tells us some, a way of to navigate life when it's difficult. He says this, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And he gives this idea, and like this is a go-to verse for me, like when I'm navigating affliction, difficult circumstances, the valleys of life, and I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, like when you go through those moments, okay, I need to be joyful. Where's that found? It's in hope. Patient in affliction, I need to be patient, and faithful, I need to be faithful, and pray, stay connected to God. And sometimes I know what that means for me, but it's hard to do. But I don't think it's an accident that these verses are right, the very next verse. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, and practice hospitality. When someone's going through affliction, and they're trying to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, and it's just hard for them? Ask what, you can, what can we do for them? What can I do? And what else can I do? And how can I be present? How can I be with you in this? And it says, practice hospitality. I heard this great description of hospitality this week. Hospitality is not making sure you have pumpkins and browns and oranges and yellows on the table in the fall. That's not hospitality. That's decorating. Hospitality is inviting people in. It's saying, come into my house. Come into my life. More so, it's come into my house. It's not clean, and I have kids. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Welcome to my life. It's not clean. But I want you to be part of it. Hospitality is to invite people in and make them feel at home in your life. And when someone is going through, they're lacking joy, they're lacking hope, they're lacking patience, they're lacking faithfulness, they're wrestling and starting to let go of what they embrace. Practice hospitality. How can we be together? How can I be with you in this? And then the very, not the very next verse, but two verses later, he gives this great kind of analogy, not analogy, a challenge. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. If someone's rejoicing, join them in that. Celebrate with them. Rejoice with them. If they're mourning, join them in that too. That's hard to do. 
Because grief has its own timeline and it's not going to necessarily be fast forwarded by my presence or my words. And I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with my hands. I don't say the right thing. Well, find a way to mourn with them. And if you can't mourn with them, at least be with them. And one of the things that I've learned is if you're involved in people's lives on both of those extremes, if I'm involved with somebody and involving people on both of those in my life and the stuff in between, when I find myself in the ditch or in the valley, when I find myself in a dark place without hope, I know who to ask to carry the mat. And sometimes we don't look for people to carry our mat until we're in the ditch. We're mourning, we're grieving, we're in pain. When you do life together authentically and honestly, following Jesus together, you know who to go to when someone needs to carry your mat. And for some of you, if you're in a place where you need hope, are you willing to let somebody else have hope for you? More than that, are you willing to ask somebody to have hope for you? To be honest and authentic and say, I'm struggling. Those people are a lot easier to find if you rejoice with those who rejoice. Because when you're mourning, the people around you really do matter. And if you want to have hope for others, go first. C.S. Lewis was able to navigate the wrestling because his friend had gone first. Others had gone first. Hope is contagious, so is despair. Actually, everything in your life is contagious. Hope, faith, patience, faithfulness, attitudes, work ethic. I mean, anything in your life, anything that's a habit, anything that's a belief, anything that's a, I mean, emotion, it's all contagious. That's why God says, be so careful with how you live your life because you are influencing people around you. So follow me. And the best thing you can do is to put your hope in me. And our, the danger, we said it last week, sometimes the danger is we put our hope in our circumstance. If everything was, would change, I would have hope. That's not hope. It's luck. That's circumstances. And if you put, and this is what C.S. Lewis learned, if I put my hope in what I see in front of me, I miss what God has planned for me. That happiness is beyond, I mean, joy is beyond happiness but I'll take happiness. If I can just have a good day, I'm good with that. What do we miss out on? Because we settle for that. And when we get into a place of lacking hope, we'll grab the first thing that floats. If we're drowning, we'll grab the first thing that floats. And C.S. Lewis was drowning. But Jack had good friends. And he picked up some books and he read and he wrestled well. And then he decided to, carry them, decided to start carrying the mat for others. With a microphone, through books, through lectures. What does it look like for you to pick up the mat and have hope for others? And again, if you're in a place where you lack hope, are you willing to ask somebody to have hope for you? Our prayer throughout this series in Romans 15 is this. May the God of hope, that's who he is. He is the God of hope. Don't look for hope in your circumstances. Look for hope in him. May he fill you with all joy and peace. Joy is bigger than happiness. Peace is beyond just things going well and I'm not stressed out. 
as you trust in him. That's the key. And when you do that, you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit shows up in your life, he brings the fruit of the Spirit. Peace and love and joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are not the fruit of your circumstances. They are the fruit of the Spirit. Don't look for them in the wrong place. Hope is found in Christ. And when you give him everything, he gives everything to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and all this will be added to you as well. But it happens through the power of the Holy Spirit of him living his life in you and through you. Hope is contagious. And you and your story, your life can bring hope to others. But it starts with having your hope focused on Christ and then saying, how can I help? What else can I do to be present and to point people to Jesus? And by faith, he sees the act of his people and it moves the heart of God. Let's stand for closing prayer. Hey, some of you have carried the mat well the last four weeks. You've served, you've attended a different time slot. The 10 o'clock service has been very full the last several weeks, including today. So thank you for making room. Some of my friends that I invited have been here. Thank you for making room for them. Uh, It makes a difference and it means a lot to me. Next week, we're going back to two services, 9.30 and 11. Adjust your calendars. It's 9.30 and 11. But if you have to attend the 9.40 and the 11.10 service, we get it. Like, that's fine, but it's 9.30 and 11. We'll have communion both services, and we're going to do the final installment of Living Hope and talking about why does hope feel so evasive? Why is hope so evasive? Um, And I look forward to talking about that together. God, thanks that you love us and you're for us, and you've promised not just to throw us something when we're in the pit, but you got in the pit with us. You showed up in life. You showed up in a manger. You showed up on a cross. Thanks that your body no longer shows up in a tomb, that you're arisen and we can have hope in you, our living hope. God, I pray for those who are in the pit right now. I pray that you would, they would have the courage to ask someone to have hope for them, that they would keep wrestling and not let go of what they embrace, that God is good and he is powerful and he does care. And God, help us know how to bring hope to others' lives, to be hope bringers to go first and let hope be contagious. And God, give us eyes to see that hope is found beyond our circumstance. Our hope is found in you. And I pray that we would live differently in a way that reflects you and who you are and it would be contagious to others. Thanks that you are the God of hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here. If you'd like to talk, I'll be down at the front. Putting my faith in, let it fade, let it break into pieces. Just give me Jesus, Jesus.